Amen. Good morning, church. You ready to go? You're going to need a Bible and a pen. If you don't have a Bible, if you have a phone, you can use that bad boy. If not, it's going to be on the screen. We're going to grip and rip. Are you ready to go? This is Psalm 34. I have had the privilege for the past 20 months to go through uh, a psalm every Wednesday night for the past 20 months. I've had 90 minutes of Wednesday. We don't have 90 minutes this morning. If I were to cut that in half, you all would be getting hungry. So we're going to cut it even more. So we're going to just go, okay? I don't have time to make you laugh today. I'm sorry. Open your Bibles. Let's get after it. Psalm 34, you ready to go? All right, it's a wonderful psalm, a psalm that's so much in it. I want you to understand that um, I'm going to talk quickly, so hang with me, write stuff down. Everything that I'm going to say, this is not Caleb giving you wisdom. Um, I've learned a lot of this from uh, men and women who have studied and are a lot smarter than me, okay? So this is what the psalm study is. It's going to be a little bit differently than I usually preach. I'm going to try to teach a little bit this morning and learn about the psalms. My prayer for you is that over these six weeks, as we spend time in the psalms, the study of these psalms would make you want to read other psalms. And the study of those psalms would make you want to read about what those psalms were talking about and look at other scripture. And all of the reading of scripture would cause us to have a desire to go love the world around us recklessly. Amen? Advance the kingdom. Let's go. Psalm 34 is where we're going to hang out this morning. One of my favorite things about it is, Tim says a lot, uh, there's a story behind the story, right? So what's going on? When I've read these psalms, studied these psalms over the past two years, the thing I've asked myself is, I often say this, I'm, you know, you, you're the kid who's asked, why, Dad? Why? Why? How? Why? You know that kid? Um, I was that kid, and I'm still that kid. I read a psalm, and they're like, God delivered me. And I'm like, from what? And they're like, just take it. Isn't that good? And I was like, but from what? Why? Why were they in trouble? The Lord saved me from trouble. And I was like, well, what did you do to get yourself in trouble? And, and like, I need help. And I'm like, what do you need help for? Like, figured, like, like I got to know the reason behind the reason. And so we can't study Psalm 34 until we go to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and see what is going on. We've heard these beautiful words of the psalm that we can say amen and yes, but why did he say these things? David uh, is running on the run from King Saul. Saul, as he often did, wanted to kill David. David is running in the wilderness, and it's the land uh, right by the Dead Sea, and it's a very sketchy area. In fact, I was listening to a pastor who was talking. He drove the roads where David was hiding. And to this day, it's like the sketchiest area over there. Like, it's the area you want to go when you don't want to be found. And this is where David is hiding and running. And so not a place you want to be. So he's in the wilderness, and he begins to get really weary, and his faith begins to wane. And so he decides to go hide amongst the Philistine people. Now, David is a pretty smart guy, but he's made some very bad decisions in his life. One of the decisions he decides is he's going to go take hiding amongst the Philistines. There was a really famous Philistine who was really, really tall. Do any of you know his name? Goliath. Good, you could talk a little bit in church. Good job. Um, Goliath was his name. He was a really tall guy, and he was the proud son of Gath, where the Philistines were. And David, as a little boy, hit him in the face with a rock. He fell down, and he got his sword and <laughs> cut off his head, which my daughter has all sorts of questions about. Um, but cuts his head off. And David, as he goes and takes hiding amongst the Philistines, is carrying, he has to choose which sword he's going to take with him in the wilderness. And being an unsmart fellow, he decides to carry the sword of Goliath right into the army of the Philistines. The king welcomes him in, and the people are like, do you know who this guy is? This is where the story takes place. Put that verse on the screen, please, in 1 Samuel. It says, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Or they say, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart, 
and was very much afraid of, the, of Achish, the king of Gath. So he, this is awesome. So he pretended to be insane. If I were to give a life verse, this may be one I give to people just to mess with people. Uh, he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard, which happens when I talk quickly. Um, next verse. Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow in, in here and carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And he's like, are there enough crazy people that I have to take care of every day? Like, this is a great verse to say. Those of you who have people who work for you, like when someone acts crazy, like, don't I have enough people to have you, not you come and act like this? There was a big superstition back in the day when people acted crazy um, that you didn't want to kill that person because you know, most people are like, why didn't they just take him out? Well, because that's like bad juju. Like, I don't want to mess superstitious. Like, if you take this person out, it's going to be more bad things for us. That's why in the New Testament, when you have the man who's possessed by demons, he's living amongst the tombs. They don't want to mess with him. There's a superstition. So David is like, now this guy wants to kill me, so I'm just going to go nuts, and I'm going to start scratching on doors and you know, uh, drooling all in my face. And this guy's like, get him out of here. So David gets out. Uh, Samuel 22, verse 1, it says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All who were in distress or in debt, or discontented, gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men and women were with him, a group that you definitely want to hang out with, right? All these people who are in debt, all these people who are upset, all these people who are hurting, all these people who are bothered, they see David's in the cave, and he's like, oh yes, now I'm surrounded by all the positive people in the whole wide world. So, when you read this psalm, who is it to? David and 400 people are gathered in the, in the cave of Adullam where David writes a lot of his psalms. In fact, later in the psalms, you'll see that he has carved a lot of these psalms into the stone there. Uh, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But David is gathered with a bunch of people, and this is when they begin singing this praise. That's a little bit of background to understand why these words and the things that he says have a little bit more umph than maybe we realize. Let's dive into the psalm, shall we? Whew, we gotta go, we gotta hurry. <sighs> it says, boom, verse one. I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David is on the run for two kings and surrounded in a cave with a bunch of people who are struggling. And what's David's first words? I shall what? I shall praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. I'm pretty good at praising God on a good day. I am pretty good that when something that is clearly of God comes my way, I can be like, thank you, God. That was awesome. Thank you very much. But when days aren't good, when days are rough, I'm not very good at praising God. And what I have found that is us as believers, our praise for God is extremely conditional. Would you agree? Am I the only one? Our praise for God is extremely conditional. When things are well, I will give it to you, Lord. And when things aren't well, I will wonder where you are. God's love for us couldn't be more opposite than our praise for him. God's love for us is completely unconditional. He says, while you were still sinners, I died for you. Our praise for God should be no matter what is going on. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances, give thanks. Now, this is important to note. It doesn't mean you're going to like every circumstance. In fact, just the opposite. You aren't going to like a lot of things. It's about having the vision to be able to see beyond the negative. Like, do you have, do any of you have the friend who's the eternal optimist? Don't you just kind of can't stand that person? You know what I mean? 
<laughs> the flight's delayed, and they're like, yes, I was wondering, I love people watching. And you're like, oh my gosh, stop talking. You know, they get the wrong order brought to the restaurant, and they're like, oh, I've always wanted to try paella. And you're like, send it back. Like, why are you being this way? You know that person? And they're like, everything's always wonderful. And I'm like, just sit on my left. I don't want to look at you. Um, <clears throat> like, the eternal optimist drives me crazy. The people who never see anything. The Lord says give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, when I, I had my eye accident, uh, when I was four, I did a couple surgeries, and, and the one that came and told my parents that I was going to have to lose my eye, uh, my parents asked for a, a room. They're like, do you have anywhere we can go where we can talk? And they, they gave them like, it was like a, a, a little closet office, this tiny little room. My parents walked in there, and uh, my dad said a prayer, and, said, and he said, Lord, uh, I don't like this, and I'm upset, but I thank you for taking Caleb's eye because we give thanks in all circumstances. And he said it was about a 30-second prayer, and we walked out. And he said, and I went and looked at my four-year-old son and had to sit by him as they prepared him to take his eye. Because the Lord says give thanks in all circumstances. Friends, we don't like all circumstances, but we give thanks. And you'll see that in a moment. Let's move forward. My soul shall boast in the Lord. Now, we boast in the Lord because he brought us out of deliverance. Now, David didn't have a lot of boast of. David could have been like, you know, could have seen that, you know, look what I did. I got out, I escaped. But there's not a lot of boast from when you're like, you don't want to say, hey, guys, remember that time I was scratching on doors and I had spit all in my face? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, wasn't that awesome? And they're like, not really, man. Like, so we can see this as like, what did he have to boast in? But he boasted about God's deliverance. And what does he say? He says, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. It's an interesting note that the writer indicates that the people of God will just obviously be humble people. You see, the prideful person who thinks they have gotten themselves somewhere, the writer just, it, it just really blunt in the book of Psalms. Well, they're probably not a godly person. Unless you recognize that everything you have, the deliverance of the Father, you may, you're probably not a godly person. He's just really blunt about it. Let's move forward. It says, verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. This can be ambiguous. This is a phrase that sounds really good on paper. And if I said, what do you mean? How do you magnify the Lord? And if you said, I sing, I would say, let's talk a little bit. Um, what does it mean to magnify the name of the Lord? And I was talking about that this week with uh, my father, and we were talking back and forth. And if, as you will read later in the Psalms, the writer says something really important that really caught my eye. He said, the name of God and the word of God are, the, are about the same. They have equal importance and equal value. So how do we magnify the name of God? We magnify the name of God by proclaiming the word of God. And the word of God exalts the name of the Lord. See, because the word of God is what contains the truth about God. You see, when we magnify the word of God, we're telling the, the world, hey, that happiness that you struggle to find in the world, that is fleeting. But in here, I have a story about a God who is joy, a joy that will never escape you. The peace of the world, it's fleeting. But in here, I have peace that surpasses all understanding. Mercy, it contains it. When we magnify the word of God, the name of God is exalted. So how do we do that? We begin to proclaim this, friends. This is why we spend time in this book. This is why we learn what's in here. So we magnify the name of the Lord. It says, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This is a group effort. Would you agree? Far too many of us, and myself is very much included in this, we tend to be bystanders. And... Uh, we watch other people magnify the name of the Lord. 
we sit back and we watch other people either lead us in worship, we sit back and watch other people do things, and we're like, the name of the Lord is being magnified. Amen. But this is not a bystander sport. We are to be participants in this. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that we are one body of believers. And it takes the body all working together, coming together as one, doing all of our jobs. We're all gifted differently, and we all need to use each other's gifts in order to accomplish things for the kingdom. The hand is a great thing, but the hand is nothing without the arm. And the arm needs the elbow, and the elbow needs the shoulder, and the shoulder needs the chest, and the chest needs the hips, and the hips need the legs, the legs and the knees. The knees need the ankles, and the ankles need the feet, and the feet need the toes to make everything work together. Would you agree? So it takes all of us doing things together. When we, a member of the one body, decide to be a bystander and watch other people magnify the name of the Lord and think they're doing a great job, the, the kingdom of God is negatively affected. The kingdom of God isn't all that it could be. When we come together as a body of believers, realizing that it takes all of us proclaiming the word of God to magnify the name of it, then the kingdom is positively affected, but not until we are all working together. It says, magnify the Lord with me. Exalt his name together. Next verse. I sought the Lord. He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. The first three verses of the psalm are just praise, praise, praise. In verse 4, we see the cause of that praise. David says, I sought the Lord. He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Three reasons he gave praise. One, I can seek the Lord. Two, the Lord hears me. Three, he delivers me from all my fears. This is about the most beautiful perspective of all time. Remember, where is David at this time? He's in a cave on the run from how many kings? Two. Two kingdoms chasing a man down. He's surrounded by people who are beaten, downtrodden, troubled, and he's in a cave, and he says, the Lord has delivered me. And I read this, and I say, I disagree. He has not. David is in full perspective of what God would do. He saw how much worse it could have been. Like, David had that perspective. Like, man, it could have been so much worse. God has already delivered me. Maybe you know why Paul writes things in the end, like to live as Christ, but to die, that's gain. He had this perspective to see beyond. My favorite person in the Bible, when I say this, um, my dad always gets really mad. He's like, why can't you choose someone else? I was like, let me live my life. Um, my favorite person in the Bible is probably Jonah. And it's because he is who I relate to most. I would love to be up here and be like, I think I relate most to Paul. But that's a lie. I don't relate. So other than like the description of Paul is that he's a short, balding man with a hooked nose, a hobble when he walks, and a high cackling laugh. Doesn't that kind of ruin the Bible for you? Can you like, like, ha, 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 That's not what I think of when I think of Paul. But this is Paul. So sorry if I ruined it for you. I would love to say I'm like Peter because we can kind of rip Peter because like he's kind of a loud mouth and he cut a guy's ear off. But, uh, but, so I'm probably like Peter. I'm like, yeah, but he was also like the father of like a lot of churches. Um, uh, I'm more like Jonah. God tells me to do something and I'm like, eh. he's like, go to Nineveh. But I could go to Southern Pain, Southern Spain and sip on frozen margs under some palm trees. Like that's what I would rather do than go to Nineveh. Like in my mind, when I think of who I'm most like, it's probably Jonah, a guy who time after time after time God brings him an idea, and he's like, that sounds good, God. I'm going to hang over here. You do your thing, and I'm your fan. Um, you know the story. It says go to Nineveh, and he instead wants to go to Tarshish, which we all would choose. And on the way to Tarshish, he's on a boat, and a storm comes, and he throws himself over. A big fish comes and swallows him up, and he's in the belly of the fish, and he begins to say a prayer. And his prayer isn't, I'm sorry. His prayer isn't, uh, help me out. 
His prayer is what? He says, thank you. Thank you for the fish. Thank you for the storm. Jonah had this unbelievable perspective to say, whatever plans I had for myself are worse than being in the belly of the fish with the Father. Whatever plans you have for your career, they are worse than anything that the Father has for you. Whatever desires in the life that you have painted in your head for yourself, they all pale in comparison to a life that anything that Jesus has. This is perspective. That I can see deliverance even when it's not in front of me. I mean, can you think of a time in your life, an instance in your life, that you would have been worse off had it not been for the grace and love of the Father? Isn't that the easiest thing to think of in the whole wide world? Like, I can give you hard things to think of, but think of your life. What would you be worse off without the Father? I'm sure your brain is running right now. My daughter looked at me the other day, and uh, she said, Daddy, can I ask you a question about your eye? And I was like, sure, baby girl. And she goes, will you ever see again? And I was like, you better believe it. I get to heaven, I'm walking around like this, and I'm going to tell you what everyone looks like. <laughs> and she goes, and she goes, heaven's going to be awesome for you, and just ran out of the room. And I was like, <laughs> deliverance is coming, friends. I'm not waiting on God to give me some crazy healing. Those of you who experience loss and pain, deliverance is here. It's at hand. We live in it, amongst it, right now. And all of this idea, this is where we get so caught up, we get so off track. David didn't lack confidence of what God would do. So he could claim confidence in the midst of the struggle that God will deliver me. He already has done it. God lives outside of our world of time and space and everything like that. He is already one. And we live under new covenant, friends. This is pre-Jesus. We know the end of the book. We win. Deliverance is at hand. We can claim confidence in trials and struggles. Let's move on. They looked to him, and they were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. When one seeks and magnifies the Lord, notice how it switches from I, I, I to what? They. When, when, this is what I believe. When, when somebody seeks and magnifies the name of the Lord around you, you will begin to remember the things that God has done in your life, and you will magnify the Lord as well. We proclaim and magnify the Lord Jesus. It calls others to him. It says they looked to God and they were not ashamed. Earlier in this, it says he boasted in the Lord. Now it says they looked and they were not ashamed. Have you ever prayed to God? He answers you and delivers you. Are you quick to give him the praise publicly? Or do you, like so many believers, tend to sugarcoat it and water it down so not to be seen as that weird Christian? You know what I mean? Like, how, how does that happen? Like, like, why do you come into work so happy every day? I just, you know, I like my job. Or God gave me this job. God gave me an opportunity to, to live and walk and breathe today, and all glory belongs to him. You know that person that never says, see you later? Like, hey, man, see you. And they're like, God bless you. God bless you. That guy's awesome. I love that guy. You know who I'm talking about? Like, you all have that person. I have this person who, I, I go to Brahms more than I should, and there's somebody who uh, takes my card every time, and every time I'm like, thank you, and he's like, God bless you, man. I'm like, right on. He looks to the Lord and is not ashamed. So many people are like, I mean, what's the last time? You know, why are this a good thing happening in your life? When's the last time you're like, because God has blessed me far more than I could ever hope, imagine, or dream. When is that your response? That's an opportunity to magnify the name of Jesus. And, and, and I... I don't think we're ashamed of God. That's not what I'm saying. I think sometimes we're ashamed that we look to him. 
Because how that make that may puts us in a court. I know people find out I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, you're a pastor. I'm like, yeah, but I like sports too. <laughs> like, I'm not super weird. <laughs> like, like, they're like, oh, he's a pastor. Oh, <laughs> like, I've never, uh, I've never done anything wrong. And I'm like, yeah, right on. Um, but like, that's their immediate response. It's not that I'm ashamed of God. It's that sometimes I seek, I ask God for opportunities and I'm ashamed to step into them. For how the world may put me in a box I don't want to be in. There's a uh, pastor and he was at, I was at a preaching conference and he told this story, that, uh, or, or not a story, he said every time he goes to eat, when he goes out to eat, and the waiter brings you your food, they ask the same question. What do they ask? Is there anything else I can get you? And every single time he says, yeah, we're about to pray for our food and we were just wondering if there's anything in your life that we could pray for. You don't have to hang here. Is there anything going on? Anything at school, work, home? Anyone sick? And he says 99% of the time, they give him something to pray for. I heard that about six months ago. I was like, that's awesome. I've never done it. I've never done it. You know why? I don't want to be that guy. You know? We don't want to be the one who's shoving Jesus down someone's throat as if the world would really hate the fact that you love them enough to pray for them. What would it be if we all went to lunch today and we asked, I don't know how many people, in this, you, know, you know, 40 people who are working this afternoon, Saying going in your life you could pray for? If one of them said yes, isn't it worth it, church? You see, they looked, the people in the cave, they looked to the Lord and they were not ashamed. Why do you have success in your business? The Lord has blessed me and the Lord is good. How do you have a good relationship with your kids? I pray for my kids all the time and the Lord has blessed them. Why do you, why do you serve in kids ministry? And your answer is because they needed help? No, the answer we serve in kids ministry is because Jesus came and he said, bring all the children to me. That's why we serve in children's ministry. You see, in not saying that, you realize what we just said, let us magnify the Lord together. By sweeping the Lord part of our life under the rug, we are missing it. We are not magnifying the name of the Lord. We, in fact, are hiding it. Because we don't want to be seen as that weird Christian. Like, God bless you, man. Just say bye. It makes me feel weird. You know, what do I say to that? God bless you too? What would it look like if we seized every opportunity we had to magnify the name of Jesus? Because we look to the Lord. We're not ashamed of the fact that we do. Why are you always in a good mood? Man, I've been redeemed, renewed, and restored, and I got another day to put my right foot in front of my left and advance the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. May we magnify his name together, look to him, and not be ashamed. The poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him. David, again, emphasized his personal experience in these truths. This is a story. David was poor in this instant. He's on the run. He's hiding. He's running. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him. Man, we don't have time to get into this today, but this is like one of the most cool theological moments in all of the Bible. This is one of the few times this phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used, and most scholars believe this is crazy, and we don't have time to talk about it, but this is actually Jesus before Jesus. The angel of the Lord is mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, and he's not mentioned in the New Testament because he's not the angel of the Lord. He's a man. He's Jesus. But in the Old Testament, you have a few instances of Jesus, and it says he's encamped around them and was with them. Now you know why Jesus says saying in the New Testament, it's like, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. David could experience this even then. How much more could you and I experience it now? It's a tangent we don't have time for. We're moving on. Verse 8. <sighs> Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. After telling of his own experience, David challenged him. David's like, if you don't believe me, Taste it and see. This is David's invitation to the ringer, the reader, the singer, anyone out there this morning, right now in your seats. If you don't believe anything I said, let me invite you to taste. 
If you don't believe anything that I've said this morning, let me give you an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now be careful. This isn't sampling. Okay, this isn't Sam's Club on Sunday afternoons. I'm not asking you to sample and see that God is good. This is why so many people say this phrase, and you've probably heard it. I tried religion. I tried God, and it didn't work for me. It's because they sampled and they didn't taste. Tasting is trusting in God, looking to God, seeking God, loving God, engaging with God. Tasting is a full, ex- full exposure to all of our senses. Tasting is giving your heart to the Lord and seeing that he's good. If you sample and try to see that God is good, you will not. You will not see. Sampling is not tasting. It says taste and see that God is good. It says, uh, moving forward, it says, the young lions lack and suffer hunger. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. David had seen this picture in the wilderness time and time again. He's seen young lions walking around suffering hunger. In David's mind, like, if the older lions can get food for the younger lions, are you really worried that God's not going to take care of you? Like, it just didn't compute in his head. You know what I mean? Like, how do you not see this? Like, if even the lions are fed, why are we questioning God? Friends, this is, listen, it says, those who seek the Lord. This is like a period sentence. This isn't like a maybe, listen to the affirmative words. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. This is Christianity wrapped up in shoe leather right here. So many times we preach things, the church has preached things that are only useful for us, those of us sitting in this room for 30 minutes. This is Christianity in shoe leather, taken out the door. Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Every good thing is from the Father. This doesn't mean you're going to go home to a new, you know, 60-inch 4K Samsung when you get home. That's not what we're saying. This may not be what the world says is things, but this is why this is everything that you need, every good thing, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, mercy, all of these things, Every good thing. This is why Paul said, I possess nothing, yet I have everything. Paul says, I have nothing, but I possess all things. For Christ is with me. I have every good thing that comes from the Father. Verse 11, it says, uh, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life? If you want to know what a life that somebody who looks like following Jesus looks like, it says, uh, keep your tongue from evil, keep your lips from speaking deceit, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Just a little thing of what life looks like. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of the earth from them. Um, this is what I know to be true. I'm not certain of much, but I do know that every single one of us in this room, including me, have a trouble or a struggle in your life right now that you have yet to take to the Lord. I mean, does anybody disagree? There's something that you have been, a decision in your mind, financial trouble, marital trouble, relationship trouble, uh, problems at work, things with your kids, things that's going on in your mind, struggle with anxiety, things things that you have yet to take to the Lord. And you have a God who says, listen to this verse, the eyes of the Lord are open to the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. We've just read the Lord hears and delivers. And we all have things that we have yet to take to the Father. You realize that all you have to do to get your answer and to get deliverance is to take them to the Father, to say, Jesus, I need you today. I need you today more than I did yesterday, and I'm going to need you tomorrow more than I did today. If we would be a people who understand that we have a God who hears and answers our cries. Now, I'm not saying he's going to give you the answer that you necessarily want or the one you think you need, 
but he will answer you if you ask. It says ask and it will be given to you. The implication of that verse is you would ask if you would, you would receive if you would ask. But the problem is so many people don't ask. I hear from people all the time, I need answers on this. And I'm like, well, have you prayed about it? And they're like, no, but God knows my heart. And I'm like, but you still have a sinful nature. I don't care how long you've been a believer. Your heart will not always be a sinful nature. You will not passively seek God. You will not passively request things of God. And we use this excuse, well, he knows my heart. Well, that's not how relationships work. He needs his children to come to him. And he says, I will answer you. But that's a relationship. And it says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off them from the remembrance of the earth. This is hard. This part's hard. The unbelieving friend, my unbelieving friend, those who have chosen to go against God, to reject the father, to choose a life of sin, to leave their spouse, to abandon their children, and they find out their child gets sick, and they fall on their knees, and they ask God to heal them. God doesn't hear that prayer. He doesn't ignore the child, but that prayer, that the unbeliever has no right to ask God for anything first except salvation. And if you can trust him enough to get on your knees and request healing, just trust him. He says, all you have to do is trust me in here. You don't even have to ask for forgiveness. That's not actually in there. Forgiveness has been on the table since the cross. It's already offered to you. All you have to do is put your trust in Christ and you'll be reborn, renewed, restored, redeemed. All those things will be at hand. The last time I was on the stage, friends, I told you, all of our names will be written somewhere and the book of life will never be removed or they will be written in sand where the wind will come and sweep them away and we will be forgotten. This is why we magnify the name of the Lord, church. This is why we proclaim the name of God. Because there are far too many people out there that have yet to put their trust in him. And they aren't experiencing a life with confidence and hope and deliverance that comes with a relationship with Jesus. And we have it in our pockets. So magnify the name of the Lord. Do you get the urgency behind the psalm? He finishes here. We'll just read this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him, delivers them from them all. You will not be free from pain and trouble just because you've trusted Jesus. But you can be confident in the Lord's deliverance. You will not, you will still experience trouble in this life. We live in a fallen, broken, evil, sinful world. You will experience pain. You will experience trouble. But he says things like, take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome it all. I don't know where you are this morning, friends. What a beautiful psalm, huh? If we had 90 minutes, we could maybe grasp 2% of it, but we don't. This morning, there are things that you and I have yet to take to the Father. I pray every time I step on the stage that we would leave a little bit differently in the way we walked in, or you would make the hard choice not to. We have a Father whose ears are open to his children. He says, ask and I will deliver you. Friends, we can live in deliverance, but a relationship with Jesus means we have, to we have to go to the Father. We are just like the people in the cave. There are people in here who are struggling with issues at work. They're struggling with loss that you've experienced. Health diagnosis is in here. I mean, you want to be real? There are so, if you just feel the room, there are needs in this room. There's problem with children. There are financial problems, relationship strife, loneliness, people who want to have a companion, people who want to have children. There are wants in this room. And the Lord is saying, bring those to me. 
Cast all your cares on me. I have ears to hear, and I will bring you deliverance. If you would just ask. Church this morning, we need to be a church that says, Lord, I need you. I need you more today than I did yesterday. I'm going to need you tomorrow more than I do today. And he will deliver you. Maybe you're in here and you've never trusted Christ. Let me tell you something. Forgiveness is on the table this morning. It's right there. It's already been offered to you. All you have to do is trust him. All you have to do is trust him. It's there. It's on the table. There is nothing more. Hear me say this. I will be up here. There will be people up here who would love to pray with you. Micah and Tim, Christy, Leslie would all be up here. There's nothing on earth, guys, would you agree, that could happen to us today that we would love more than you to trust Christ. I could win the lottery five times, go home, and someone fill my home with cash. My son could say his first sentence, I love you, Dad. There's nothing that could happen to me more today that, I would, that could be more important than you trusting Christ today. Nothing. Don't leave this room the same way you walked in. There's nothing better than that. I don't know where you are this week, friends. But it's my prayer that we as a church would magnify the name of the Lord together. Amen. And if we would take the word of God out and the name of God would be exalted because there are people, the same struggles that you and I have, there are people in this world who are walking with those same struggles without the confidence that we have, without the hope that comes with the relationship with Jesus. That shouldn't be okay with us. That should fire us up. We should walk out of this room a little bit passionately, ready to talk to the person who gives us our food today and ask them a question ready to pray for our neighbors, ready to send a text or make a phone call to that person that needs us. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that your name is magnified in this place. That we would call out to a God and say, Lord, we need you because you have ears to hear and want to deliver us. So may we call out to you today, Father. May we proclaim the word of God, trusting that the word of God it's so powerful that it will magnify the name of God and that many people be brought to you. Lord, for those in here that never put their trust in you, the Lord desires, you desire to hear their prayer, to meet their needs, if they would just put their trust in you. Forgiveness is already on the table. They don't have to ask for that. That was done on the cross a long time ago. You've offered it. May we step into it today, Jesus. May we look to you and not be ashamed. May all glory and honor, and power, and praise be yours forever and ever. And may your name be magnified as we lift you up together. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.